Father, we do uh, praise you and we do bless you and thank you for for who you are and uh, your great love for us. And you demonstrate that love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You sent your your one and only Son, and uh, he willingly came and paid the penalty for our sins. And we praise you. And we praise you for who you are, and we praise you for your Son, Jesus. And Father, we thank you for another opportunity you've given us to be together to uh, declare your excellencies, to proclaim your name, to sing your praises. And I pray as we go into your word now, you would prepare our hearts, that our hearts would be receptive, that we would be teachable, that we would continue to be instructed, Lord God, so that uh, Christ would be magnified. We commit this time to you now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is it that you hold on to? What is it that you cling to? What is it that your heart uh, sets its desires upon? Some people cling to money. Some people cling to family. Some people cling to their careers. Some people cling to education, friends, hobbies, whatever it might be. What do you cling to? What does your heart spend the most time focused on? What does your heart spend the most time focused on? Well, although some of those things are not bad and are God-given, today we're going to see that we as believers are to be holding fast the word of life. We're to be giving our attention and clinging to the word of life. And that brings us to what we're going to see today, how we are to live the Christian life as we, as we work out that salvation that God has worked in. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2? We're going to be looking specifically at verse 16 today, but we'll be reviewing up to where we are in this portion of this wonderful passage. Now again, Philippians is a wonderful book. The Apostle Paul is writing to those uh, he loves, their uh, beloved brethren. And he is writing to them about 10 years after he had the tremendous privilege of sharing the gospel with them and bringing about this, uh, this church in Philippi. He's very close to them and they're very close to him And he has revealed his thankfulness to God for God's past work in them and his confidence that God will complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. And he has uh, prayed for them that their love for Christ would abound in, in real knowledge and discernment. That they would be able to approve the things that are excellent, to, to, to walk righteously in a sense. And we see that uh, the Apostle Paul made it clear that the circumstances that he was encountering, his imprisonment, had turned out for the better, for the cause of the gospel going forth, rather than it being restrained, which some might have thought. And then he turned to the Philippians, and within that, or within that he shared, really ultimately, that he wanted his life to magnify Christ in, in whatever means. The Apostle Paul was about to go before Caesar, and the potential was that he could uh, be executed And so he shared, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live, it's more important to stay on to, 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 to minister faithfully to, in the Lord's power and strength to the Philippians and to die is gain because it's much better to be with the Lord. All things he desired that Christ would be magnified. And then we saw his, uh, his, uh, sharing of the Philippians condition and he goes to them what they should be doing that they should be walking as heavenly citizens in, in a manner worthy of the gospel. They're to stand firm, striving together for the truth of the gospel, not afraid of the opposition, which is a sign to them that they are on their way to glory and to their opposition, that they're on their way to destruction. And then we saw how we are to maintain unity together in the body of Christ in chapter 2. We saw what that looks in practice. We are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But in contrast, we are to regard others as supreme above ourselves. Supreme above ourselves. Surpassing, superior. We are to be scoping out ways uh, to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And how is it this can be done? How can we have such an attitude, we uh, sinners redeemed by God's grace? It is only when we have the mind of Christ functioning within our hearts that we can do so. We are to have this mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus. 
that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, he humbled himself, right? Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of men. He, he, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The mindset of Jesus Christ that saw us as more important, saw the Father's will as more important than his for our benefit out of the context of love. And within that, the humility of obedience unto all the way to the point of death for our behalf. And then we saw because of that, he was exalted and given the name that's above every name, that the name Jesus possesses, that his name, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And within that, having been exalted, we came to the implications of that exaltation for every believer that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and that working out is obedience, just as they have always obeyed. Work out your salvation. That it's, it's sanctification. Allow it to function. Allow God's word that's in you to function in your behavior, because God is at work in you. And then last week we saw the first real application of working in our salvation, doing all things without grumbling and disputing. So how are we to live the Christian life? I think specifically we're going to see the next portion of this, which reveals that we should be holding fast the word of life. Now let's read our passage. I'm going to read back to verse 12 and read up through it again so we can see it all together. Um, Let's start with verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And here's what we saw last week. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And now our passage, which is connected, you'll see that. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Now, the text keeps going. It just keeps going to the end of the book. That's how Paul writes. He writes on and on and on. It's wonderful, inspired by the Spirit. And and yet, uh, I wanted to do verses 17 and 18 also, but we would have been here an extra hour. So we're just going to stop at 16. But be aware, it does transition slightly to 17 and 18, and even transitions after that point as he talks about Timothy. So what have we seen already? First of all, we need to review what we saw last week because it is crucial. Because as you notice in verse 16, it starts with the word holding fast. Therefore, it, it hangs on something that's been said before. And so we need to understand that and be reminded of it. And it's so important if you'll remember what we saw last week. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I could just say that right now. And there's probably a few people here that need to repent right now. We are, have a tendency to complain and grumble, don't we? We'll see that. And we are not to do so as believers. We are not to do so as we'll say. You see, in verses 12 to 13, we are to uh, bring out our salvation to its ultimate conclusion, to work it out in the context of fear and trembling. We are to obey, and within that, it is in the context of humility and dependence. We're to work it out, because God is at work in us. God is working in us by His Spirit through His Word, and that should manifest in us faith, And then obedience, the obedience of faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing for the word of Christ. And so we have God at work in us, and he's doing this to his own will and to his own good pleasure, those things that please him. It's a wonderful thing that God is doing. And then we have the first application or or real direct command concerning this working out of our salvation. Very practical command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's said this is one of the most disobeyed New Testament commands in Scripture, and I would agree. 
Indeed, we saw last week we are to keep on doing everything without grumbling and disputing. The implication is the Philippians were doing that, but they needed to continue to do that. They were obeying, just as you have always obeyed, now not only in my presence, but in my absence, Paul says. The reality is we as believers will have changed lives if you are a real believer. You're going to be different than the world. You're not going to continually habitually sin like you used to. But we can fall into these patterns and we are tempted to do so. And we are exhorted to keep on doing all things without complaining and grumbling. Do you remember what we saw, what grumbling was? Grumbling is our verbal expressions of discontent or displeasure, often accompanied by feelings of annoyance and anger. It can be through your lips or it can be under your breath, right? It comes from the heart. That's grumbling. It's grumbling. It's an expression of dissatisfaction or complaint. And it is contrary to who we are in Christ because if you are trusting Christ, you realize He is sovereign and in control and working all things together for good. And we grumble about a lot. What, what do we complain about? Just about everything, right? Well, the world does, but we are not to. We are not to. There's not one area in our lives we are allowed by God to grumble about. There's not one area in our lives we are allowed to complain about. And when we do so, we are sinning. This idea of complaining here, or grumbling, can be translated murmurings, grumbling, complaining. And folks, do I need to talk about complaining? We understand that, right? I mean, just watch TV, right? And watch the news. I mentioned this last week. Everything that is said is a complaint against somebody or something, right? There's something going on in every situation. The world grumbles and complains all the time. Okay, so that's grumbling, but what is disputing? What is disputing? The term dialogismos, we get our word dialogue from that. Now certainly, uh, within that, it's not speaking of conversations that we have with one another. It's in a negative context. The, tra- the word is often translated evil thoughts or reasonings. It's that thing going back and forth in your head when it's evil. The Lord Jesus shared that. It's also translated disputes and arguments and quarrels that are those things that come from evil reasonings. Disputes, arguments, quarrels. Comes from wrong thinking that is self-focused and wants things the way they want it or the way we want it. It is the opposite of what we saw back in Philippians chapter 2, earlier, verse 2. It's the opposite of this. Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete in being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in one spirit, united in spirit, intent in one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This uh, argumentation, or whatever it might be, uh, uh, disputes, uh, disputing, it, it, it's negative dialogue characterized by arguing, which comes from wrong, selfish thinking. And we all know what it is, but we are never to have it happen in our lives. And I hope this week you've been convicted by the word of God when you were tempted to argue, when you were tempted to grumble. I hope so. If you, if you weren't, I don't know where your heart is at, to be honest with you, after last Sunday. We need to be convicted and allow our hearts to, to, let, to be formed to the image of God as we allow God's word to conform our thinking. We are to do all things continually without complaining and arguing. Now we know again the Philippian believers were obeying. He says, continue to do it. Continue to do this. Continue not to be that way. They're real believers. They're real believers, by the way. If you find yourself complaining and arguing all the time, I'd tell you, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. There has to have been a time when you were walking with the Lord if you came to faith. And then maybe you were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Even baby believers are sensitive to sin when they come to faith. More so than some mature believers, by the way. Do all things without complaining and arguing. You remember we saw how serious this sin is? It's a serious sin. 
And we need to raise our level of understanding of how serious this sin is. Now, I'm not going to go into the Old Testament passages I shared in Numbers and, and Exodus, but I want to go to 1 Corinthians just to remind us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because God has written things in the Old Testament to instruct us. If you look at the history of the nation of Israel, we are instructed what not to do, by the way. What not to do. Yes, there was a remnant, but by and large, they were in unbelief. And that nation gives us a picture of what we should never be like. What we should never be like. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. He's speaking about when they had come from Egypt, they were, they went through the Red Sea, God had opened that up, and the cloud, they, they, they went through and they were led by Christ. And all were baptized into Moses. This helps us understand the word baptized. They didn't get, they didn't get Moses poured on them. They were placed into a relationship with Moses where they were identified with him. They were identified with Moses. And he says here, Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. They had every opportunity. The God of the universe was displaying his majesty and glory before them, giving them his word. And they had every opportunity to follow and trust and walk with him. But they didn't do so, except for a remnant. Nevertheless, look at verse 5, with most of them, most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That speaks of their being let to die out in the wilderness and not go to the promised land because of God's discipline. And then he says, now these things happened as examples for us. That we should not crave evil things as they craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it said, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink instead of to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the, by the serpents. Nor let, nor, what does he say here? Grumble. Grumble. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Wow. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Be instructed, brother and sister. Written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And you can keep reading. The exhortation to flee idolatry and then, then the exhortation to, to go to Christ when you are tempted. Now again, I don't have time to look at the Old Testament passages this refers to as we did last week, but we saw in those passages in Exodus and Number, we learned some important truths about grumbling in God's view of it. First of all, we saw that most of their grumbling of the Israelites was directed towards their spiritual leadership, Moses and Aaron, that God had placed in their midst. But we saw another important point that ultimately, although they were grumbling against them, their grumbling was against God. Grumbling against God. Moses shares with them, Exodus 16, 8, your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And the Lord shares so too later on. And lastly, we saw how serious this sin was to grumble about food and water and, and our place and all these things, right? They're grumbling about their circumstances, grumbling about their leadership. How serious it was as God took the lives of those who grumbled. They grumbled about the possibility of going into the land because of the report that came back from the unbelieving spies. And they were laid low. God had it with them. He wanted to wipe them out for their grumblings and testing in their wickedness. And yet Moses interceded. And so he laid them low in the wilderness. They didn't get to go into the promised land. They died out. Very serious. Grumbling is a very serious sin. When we are discontent over the circumstances in our lives as believers... We've got sin in our lives. Now, sometimes it's because we've got God's disciplinary hand in our lives and we're not seeing it. 
We've made mistakes, whether it's financially, whether it's relationally, whether it's uh, spiritually, we've made mistakes and we're reaping now. And instead of being discontent, we should allow God to train us that we would share in his holiness. Or simply, we're running into difficulties that are not of our own making, whatever it might be. And we are not to grumble. We may be running into the sin of others. I hope you've noticed that other people are sinners too, right? And everyone we know, the closer they are, the more we realize that everyone around us is a sinner. And those who are saved, they're redeemed by grace, but they're sinners. And sinners, guess what? What do they do? They sin. Sin against you. We sin against them, right? And that can cause us to grumble when someone doesn't do what we want them to do. When someone doesn't do what we think they should do, or someone does something to us which we think is wrong, whatever it might be. But we are to do all things without grumbling and disputing. It's no coincidence that this passage comes on the heels of an exhortation to think like Christ in the context of humility. The mindset of humility, a humble servant thinking of others is more important than yourself. If you see everyone as super above you, there's not much to grumble about. Because you take God first and foremost as super, super, super way above you as our God. We reverence him and walk in fear and trembling, right? And then others, we exalt them above ourselves and our hearts and minds like Christ did with us. He placed us above his own interests. He placed God's will above his own interest and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, folks, indeed, grumbling and disputing reveals a lack of humility and trust and it is the elevation of self-interest and it's ultimately against God and it's ugly and God hates it because it's ultimately against him. It's a serious matter. We need to take the command seriously. All things without grumbling and disputing. Is there any area we have an option to do so? Maybe we have a terminal illness. Maybe we have something else. Sick, whatever it is. Those are real live difficulties that affect us to the core of our being. Do we have a right to grumble about it? Absolutely not. As we'll see later on in Philippians, we go to the Lord. We go to him with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, making our requests known about those things. We walk with the Lord. We trust in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord rather than grumble. Whatever it might be, we can have many temptations Many temptations. Maybe you're in a situation where people are sinning against you. You're tempted to grumble about the situation. No. All things without grumbling. Maybe you're in a work situation where it's not good. No. Obey the word of God instead of sinning. Sinning. When you find yourself complaining and grumbling, you're finding yourself in the context of a lack of humility and thus obedience to the Lord. All things without complaining and arguing. Is there any area where you've been grumbling in your heart? Maybe it hasn't gone out to anybody. If you don't repent and you're a real believer, he's going to discipline you. And maybe you're experiencing discipline right now. God is making things in your life very difficult because he loves you. He loves you and he wants you to share in his holiness. Respond. Repent. Be set free and rejoice. And then experience the the, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit. You'll know when you've repented. There's a peaceful fruit of righteousness, by the way. You'll know. You'll know when you've truly yielded your heart over in humility in the context of repentance. Do you give yourself a pass for sin? Do you have a right to grumble or complain about anything as a believer? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are commanded, do all things continually without complaining and arguing. And then last time we saw the temporal purpose. There's a reason why. There's a temporal purpose, and then there is also an eternal purpose. There's a temporal purpose, first of all, which talks about what God is saying we should do this for right now, what is going to be the effect right now. And then there is an eternal reality, which we're going to look at today. So let's finish our review and look at the temporal reality first. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. I just shared uh, 20 minutes about that, right? There's no room in our lives to grumble and complain about anything, right? And if believers were not to do it. And then look at verse 15. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent 
children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Here we have the purpose clause in verse 14, and there are two purposes, as I shared. One is the first one in verse 15, which is the temporal purpose, the purpose for this current time, right? Now, that does have eternal implications. We understand that. But then secondly, there is an eternal purpose, as we will see, uh, based on what we are to do in verse 16. So we are to do all things without complaining and grumbling. Hina, the word in Greek, that or so that for the purpose that you might prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above approach. Now remember, we saw this in some of your Bibles. Have a note there. It's the word, the, the term translated, you, that, or you may prove yourselves to be, you may prove yourselves to be, all those, Ameri- all those English words, right? One Greek word, genomai. And it literally means to become or to be, and it's in a tense like that. That you may prove yourselves, or literally that you may become, practically speaking, practically speaking, blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Folks, we are blameless and innocent in God's sight because of Jesus Christ. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? He saved us that we would be holy and blameless before him, right? But practically speaking, we still sin, and God is changing us. He is making us like his son, and it is his will for us to be less and less the way we used to be before we got saved, and more and more like Jesus Christ. And and if we do these things that God commands us to do with the right heart, as we'll see, by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God working in us in humility, it's going to demonstrate, or something's going to happen. We're going to become something, practically speaking. You know, if someone screams and yells and, and, uh, and is really mean to people, you know, and he becomes what we call a jerk, right? We see someone becoming something, right? Give me an example, right? You see someone become what they are doing in a sense, right? Well, folks, if you allow God's word to work in your heart and you obey it, you will become something which people will see. He says that you may become blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. The term blameless speaks of outward behavior that is without fault that cannot be rightly blamed. It's what you see on the outside, behaviorally speaking. It can't have a valid accusation against it. Yes, people will blame it. Satan's the accuser of the brethren, but it can't have a valid accusation. Now, folks, there are those who are make-believers and fakers. And they're pretty good at it. The Pharisees were good at it, I'll tell you that. And they could have nothing on the outside. They could, they could actually walk really righteously on the outside, but on the inside they were corrupted. They might be blameless outwardly, but they didn't have an inward, as we'll see, purity. Notice he says here not only that we would be blameless, but what? Innocent. The term innocent speaks of unmixed pure you see true believers when we're allowing the mind of christ to control our hearts when we are obeying his word in relationship to what he has declared for us we're then going to be outwardly without blame and inwardly pure because our hearts are right our hearts are right and these believers are to continually be this way in the context of doing all things without complaining and grumbling And notice he says, children of God, children of God. You see, we should reflect the nature of our spiritual father. We're not to, you know, if you're not in Jesus Christ, your spiritual father is Satan. That's what the scripture says. That's your spiritual uh, lineage, by the way. And all of us start that way. We are all born in sin. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we have a new father. We are adopted into the family. And we are to reflect the nature of our father who is in heaven. And it is only when we trust Christ and rely on him and obey him that we do so if it's from the heart. We are to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach. The term above reproach spoke of spotless. 
It was used to speak of the sacrifices which were, which were spotless, without blemish. You see, Jesus Christ was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. He was without blemish. The Old Testament sacrifices, the ones that were spotless, it was imagery to, to speak of holiness and pureness. They were without blemish. It pointed to Jesus Christ, who was without spiritual blemish. He was without sin. He was spotless, without blemish. And so when we do all things without complaining and grumbling in the context of trusting the Lord and many other commands, we do that, we become, practically speaking, in this life, blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach. You see, if you are out there complaining at your work, complaining at school, complaining at your family, you're no different than the world. You're no different. You have no, who wants to ask you why you have hope for this life afterwards when you're complaining just like I'm complaining, right? Someone's complaining, right? Who's, who wants to ask you for that? But if there's something different in your life because a true relationship with Christ, they can see His righteousness in you, which is contrary to their unrighteousness. As we see, you appear as lights in the world. Look at our passage. Do all things without complaining and grumbling and disputing that you may prove yourselves or or literally become uh, blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. The term crooked speaks of morally corrupt. Perverse speaks of that which has been perverted or twisted by sin. That's the way the world is. No matter how nice they look, no matter what it might be, the world is perverted. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. And we believers are in the midst of a sinful, wicked world to which we appear, the word means shine, we appear as lights. The term, as I shared last week, was luminary, stars. It's translated stars in other places. We appear as lights down here in the midst of a dark world, just as the stars up there appear as lights. We appear as lights. And so here we are to walk in such a way that we are above reproach. We're to become blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 5:13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. This is speaking to believers. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but a lamp but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, we are the light of the world, and the question is, how is our light shining? Is it shining righteously or not? We are the light of the world. Let it shine in such a way that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. No complaining, no arguing, no grumbling, no disputing in any situation, ever, ever. It's not allowed It's not consistent in any way, shape, or form with the character of God. And we are to become like Christ. We are to do all things without complaining and grumbling and arguing that we might become blameless and pure children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked, corrupt, perverse world of unbelievers to whom we shine as luminaries as Christ's righteousness is manifest in our behavior among this dark world. We are light in the dark world. We are the manifestation of the righteousness of Christ, the only manifestation that mankind will see. So that's the temporal reason why we're to do it, that we would manifest the character of Christ in this dark world right now, in the midst of a dark world, and God will use that for his glory, that men would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. What will non-believers do when when they see your works? What do they say? What do they think? Will it cause them to be convicted of their own sin, of their own unrighteousness? Maybe they might turn and, and, uh, as we see in Matthew chapter 5, and persecute you for that, for righteousness' sake. Or maybe, just maybe, Christ might visit them in the context of salvation because they're convicted of their sin.
We pray for that. So then the temporal reason, as we saw, is that we might shine in the context righteously right now as lights as we do all things without complaining and grumbling. But then look at our passage. What's the eternal implications? Verse 16, and I'm going to read up to it again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked crooked and perverse uh, generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, now look at verse 16. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, run in vain, or, nor toil in vain. Apostle Paul speaking to the beloved Philippians. Notice verse 16 begins with a participle. That means it doesn't stand by itself. It doesn't stand by itself. You see, it's connected to what we have previously seen. That all believers, as they're obediently doing all things without complaining, grumbling, disputing, they're blameless and innocent, becoming that above reproach in the midst of a sinful world as we shine as luminaries, holding forth or fast the word of life. Present tense. Continually holding fast the word of life. Folks, the only way that you are going to be able to function as a believer in this life is to hold fast the word of life, as we're going to say. That's the only way to do it, is to have God's word dwelling richly in your heart, to allow a real relationship with the living God as he speaks to us personally through his word by his spirit to change our thinking and thus our behavior. It's a real relationship. And so how can we do all things without complaining or growing? How can you do it when there's so much to grumble about and complain about? Right? Holding fast the word of life. Now, as we come to this portion, this is probably the reason why we didn't do all this last week, because it's not so easy to interpret this portion, and it takes some work to go through it. This Greek word is a difficult portion here. There's kind of an interpretive problem, and most translations translate it, holding fast. And you might note that some say holding forth. Holding forth. Well, those are two different things, aren't they? Holding fast the Word of God and holding forth the Word of God. And so we have two different interpretations of our passage. And both of them are biblical, by the way. We certainly offer the Word of God to non-believers in the gospel. Certainly do that. We'll see that. So which one is it? Is Paul speaking of holding on to, as we'll see, the Word of God or holding forth the word of God so as to present it to others. Again, both of these are biblical, but which one comes from our passage? Which one comes? A lot of teachers who will say it's holding forth in this context because it comes right after saying which which we appear as lights. The context there would be we're in the world and then we hold forth the word. That's certainly possible in the dark world. And there are others who will say it speaks of holding Fast the word of life. So which one is it? Well, to understand it, we need to understand this verb translated holding fast. It comes from the Greek word ep-echo. Epi, upon, echo, to hold. It speaks of holding upon. Now in secular Greek, and this is where some interpretations come from, we go first of all primarily from the Greek in here, right? As we look at words. Then we go New Testament, Old Testament, Greek translation, then secular Greek. The weight of that is much lower. But in secular Greek, it is used sometimes to speak of offering someone something, holding towards. I'm holding this, and I'm holding it towards you. You see? And that's where we can get that interpretation, holding forth. But yet in Scripture, every time we look at it, I think we can understand its meaning better. It's used... Five times in the New Testament, three by Luke and twice by Paul, one included in this portion here. And so in Luke chapter 14, verse 7, it's translated notice or noted. Very interesting. Notice or noted? How do we get that from holding upon? Notice or noted. And it speaks in the context of how the Lord noticed or noted the Pharisees taking the best seats. And then he gave a parable about that. He noticed it. He noted what they were doing. And then he gave a parable. So he held on to that thought. He noticed it. That's the way it comes forth. Okay? Uh, We see it also in Acts chapter 3, verse 5, and it's translated giving attention. 
Speaking of the lame man who gave his attention to Peter. He was looking to get something from Peter, and Peter gave him what he wasn't expecting, right? Okay, he was looking to get something. He was turning his attention, holding on to the thought of what Peter could do for him. Turning his attention to it, okay? We have also this word used in Acts chapter 19, verse 22. It's translated stayed. Well, that's interesting. It speaks concerning Paul who stayed or held fast in Asia for a while. Okay? It's translated also, and that's, that was by Luke. Those are the three by Luke. Now the other one by Paul is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Hold on to the teaching. Look at what you're doing personally and hold on to the teaching. Pay close attention. Indeed, in the King James, it's translated, take heed. Pay attention to yourself and, tra- and your teaching. Take heed to your attention and teaching. There's a cognate of this word we see in, um, in, first, or in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Not, uh, not um, ep echo, but ant echo. That's your ant echo, right? If you're Greek, right? Okay, bad Greek joke. But it means basically holding fast. We see it translated. Holding onto, grasping unto oneself the faithful word. Speaking of elders. So, but what does our passage mean? Which one is it? Well, certainly, we see in Scripture our behavior might open the door to share why we have hope, and that's through the gospel. Absolutely. But our passage talks about continually, habitually holding it forth. So the question is, do we continually, habitually hold the word forth to a dark world? Does that happen all the time? Is that what we're going to do all the time? Did Jesus do that all the time? Do we continually, habitually hold it forth? I don't think so. I think we do it with discernment. As the Lord opens doors, we share the Word of God. Well, what about, secondly, this this, uh, passage? The context actually mitigates against the idea of sharing the gospel, holding it out, but actually supports holding it towards ourselves. You see, if we hold the Word fast, the Word of God, from the teachers that teach us, like Paul taught them. If we hold fast that, it's going to change our behavior. We're going to be blameless and innocent, above reproach, in the midst of a dark world, and it's going to bring glory to God in eternity when we see what God did through us. And Paul talks about it in the very same verse, that you didn't run in vain. Hold fast the word, you Philippians, so that in the day of Christ... I can glory in what Christ did to you that all that word going to you wasn't in vain. You held on to it. You held on to it. So the context, I think, also points to the fact that it probably is holding personally onto the word ourselves, although we do place it forward to others. See here, so both translations are possible, and a lot of Bible teachers go different ways, but I think it's holding fast as it's translated in your Bibles. The word of God. Setting my attention to it. Paying close attention, as we see in 1 Timothy 4.16. Paying close attention to it. Holding fast the word of life. We're to pay close attention to the word of life. Brothers and sisters, there's no way you can do things without complaining and grumbling. There's no way you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling without holding fast the word of God. So we'll see. But notice he says here, not simply the word of God, he says, holding fast, back in our passage, verse 16, the word of life. The word of life. The word of life. Now, we've already implied an answer to this question, but what is the word of life? What's the word of life that we are holding fast to continually, habitually, brothers and sisters? What is that? What is that? Well, first of all, the only other place that this exact Greek phrase is used is in 1 John 1.1. Let me read this for you. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, this is Apostle John, what we have beheld with our hands and handled concerning the word of life. Speaking of Jesus Christ, right? The word of life. We know certainly that Jesus is the Word incarnate. He is what God wants us to know about Him. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John, 1 John 1, 1, he speaks of Jesus as the Word of life. You see, it is Christ who manifests the reality of life to a dead world, a world that is dead in sin. You see, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He came to bring life, spiritual life, a relationship with the living God, eternal life. This is eternal life that you might, they might know thee, the one and only true God, and your Son whom thou hast sent, John 17. He came to bring that. You see, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ is the means in which we experience true life through our relationship with him because of faith in Christ Jesus who brought about the forgiveness of sins through his death and then resurrection. Indeed, Jesus is the bread of life, right? Who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, John 6, 33. So is our passage speaking of holding fast to Jesus? Is that what it is? It's a possibility. But we have to address these interpretive challenges here. I think most likely it's speaking of the word of God that comes from the God of the word. We had this read earlier, but turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. You see, we can hold fast to Jesus, practically speaking, but what we hold fast to is what he said. We hold fast to what he said, and then we trust in him based on what we know about him from his word. We don't hold on to a a Jesus in our own minds that we make up and think about and feel nice about. We hold on to the Jesus who is revealed in Scripture and the one who died for our sins, as we see. John 6, verse 67. Jesus said to them, to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? Hey, the church is getting pretty small at that time, by the way. Those who wanted to follow Jesus decided not to follow him anymore, basically, because things were too difficult for them to understand, too difficult for them to accept, because they didn't have ears to hear, by the way. And he says to his disciples, to 12, you don't want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, Jesus Christ is the life, and it is his word that reveals the life, and it's his word that he uses to bring forth life. It's through the word of God that we are born again, through the living and abiding word of God, the truth concerning Jesus Christ. It is through his word that we grow in respect to salvation. It is by his word that we interact and relate with him. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's my belief here that the means in which we're able to do all things without complaining and grumbling, to work out our salvation and thus become blameless and innocent children of God above reproach is through holding fast the word of life. Holding fast. Paying close attention to the word of life. Speech of the word of God, the living word of God from the living God, the God of the word. This is key. Renewing your heart and mind with the Spirit-inspired Word, holding fast to it. What do you pay attention to throughout the day? What things do you think about throughout the day? Do you hold fast in your relationship with Jesus to what he has said? You know, the Great Commission, as it's called in Matthew 28, we're to be taught to obey all that Jesus said, it says, right? We're being taught to obey his word. This is about obedience here. All things without complaining and grumbling. Are you holding fast the word of God? Are you paying attention to it? Some of you aren't at all. The implication is eternal, by the way. We'll see in a minute. The implication is it's going to affect, if you're a true believer, your eternal rewards and your eternity, by the way. What you do with the word today. What you do with the word each day. Are you paying close attention to it, allowing it to change your thinking? You're tempted to argue. You start arguing. You realize, no, it's wrong. Lord, I'm sorry. You confess it. You recognize. You let God's word direct your thinking. You humble yourself before him and become obedient. We see here that we are to do all things without complaining and grumbling. We're to be holding fast the word of life. 
You see, it's a different demeanor towards God's word. It's a different desire towards it. We're to hold on to God's word. Now, in the book of Proverbs, we have God's word spoken of as his wisdom. As his wisdom. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. When you see the word wisdom in the Old Testament, Proverbs, it's speaking of God's wisdom that he brought forth and brings forth that is profitable for believers in the relationship with the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18, and this is speaking of wisdom. Speaking of wisdom, and notice what it says. Proverbs 3, 18. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who hold her fast. God's word, God's wisdom. You hold it to your heart. You hold fast to it. It's everything for you. Because it's from a real God. It's not just simply memorizing Bible verses and going to sermons. You need to do that. But it's a real heart that's right in the midst of that. In the midst of that. Holding fast the word of God. What about Psalm 1? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. It's a changed demeanor and attitude towards the God of the word. I want to hear his voice. I want to obey his voice. I want to be changed. I'm holding on to it. I'm holding fast to it. It's an absolute requirement of elders. They are to be holding fast the faithful word. First, or Titus chapter 1, 9. Everything is in the context of that grasp of his word in your heart, which will then apply to everything you do. What about uh, Proverbs chapter 4? Turn to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 3. And again, speaking of God's wisdom, which is his word, which, which changes our hearts. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 3. When I was a son to my father, tender and only... Tender, and only, only son in the side of my mother, then he taught me. I hope you're teaching your kids. He taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Well, his word was the word of God. Do you tell your kids, hold fast the word of God? Do you want them to be in the word? Do you want them to hold on to it? Don't let your thoughts reign your life. Let God's word reign your life. The mind of Christ. He said, let your heart keep hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. Start getting it in your heart. right? And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place a on your head a garland of grace she will present you with a crown of beauty crown of beauty then look down at verse 13 chapter 4 proverbs take hold of what instruction do not let go guard her for she is your life folks from our innermost being come the springs of life Renew your heart and mind with the word of God. Hold fast to it. Hold fast to it. Not in a mechanical, non-relational way, but recognizing it's the word of God, empowered by his spirit. It's from God to us, and he uses it to change us. He uses it to change us. We are to be holding fast the word of life. Are you obeying that command, brother and sister? When something comes upon you and shakes you off your kilter, are you holding fast his word or are you complaining and grumbling? Someone comes across you, says something you don't like, are you holding fast his word, trusting in him, or are you arguing? Are you holding fast his word? Holding fast the word of life. You see, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God working in you. We should be holding fast the word of God. So are you doing so? If you don't, in every area of your life, you're not going to respond rightly. You've got to hold fast the word of God in every area. Pull it close to your heart. Treasure it in your heart. Treasure what God says. Change your thinking, brothers and sisters. 
Now notice we're to hold fast the word of God. Back to our passage in Philippians. We're to hold fast because in the day of Christ, the labor of the word done unto us will have eternal significance. Look at here again. Do all things without complaining or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that for the reason of in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, Paul says, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He's talking about the reality of how he toiled and he labored in the word for the Philippians. He labored bringing it to them. He labored instructing them. He labored in that. And the toil that he had in that could either be spiritually beneficial or glorifying to God in eternity or not, based on the response, whether one holds it fast or not. You see, if you don't hold fast the word I preach, it's going to be a sad time in the time of rewards when we see what was done was in vain. And I wonder how many people here, this preaching that you have heard week after week after week will be in vain in the day of Christ. I pray it isn't so. I pray it isn't so. The Apostle Paul says, hold fast so it won't be that way. And I say, hold fast so it won't be that way. The term toil speaks of exhausting labor. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man. Hold to instruction, by the way. With all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Colossians 1.29, And for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. He says, for I don't want you to be unaware of the struggle. The struggle, he says, I have on your behalf and those in Laodicea. And for all who have personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged and they may be knit together in love. Hold fast the word of God that you would be changed. And it's an eternal change, by the way, that will bring God glory forever. He says, so that in the day of Christ. What's the day of Christ? The day of Christ. Paul's already spoken of it in chapter 1 twice. It's, we have a similar term in, in First and Second uh, Corinthians, the day of the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the day of Christ is not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is God's eschatological judgment upon sinners. But here, the day of Christ is related to the completion of our salvation, the culmination of our salvation for the body of Christ. Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident for this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it up to or to the day of Christ Jesus. We see in Scripture that when Christ comes for his bride, the church, when the body of Christ is taken away to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, when, when we are there with him, our salvation will be complete. When we see him, 1 John 2, we will, we'll, we will see him as he is, and we will, we will be as he is, it says. 1 John 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power. Tremendous reality. You see, our salvation will be completed. And at that time, what we did in the body now, how we responded to the word, how we held fast or not, will have eternal implications because our holding fast will, will be manifest in our actions and our deeds, which will be judged in the body. Folks, there is a judgment day for believers, but not for sin. And that's what Paul's speaking of here. He wants to praise and glorify God in that day because the Philippians held fast the word and thus they were rewarded for that, and Christ was glorified, as we'll see. Rather than having run in vain, where in that day where God shows what's really going on in the hearts of people. Now, there are fakers and make-believers that they're not even going to be there, because they're going to be judged for their sin, by the way. But the true believers who, who didn't hold fast to the word of God, it's going to be evident. And all the work that went forth will be totally in vain. I don't want that to happen. 
Paul didn't want that to happen. Look at Romans chapter 14. We'll finish up here. Romans 14. Verse 10, and the Apostle Paul is addressing the weaker, stronger brother. The weaker brethren uh, is saying, hey, you can't do those things, you know, is, is basically judging. And the stronger brother is looking down with contempt. Hey, we have the freedom in Christ. And so he's commanding them not to do either, by the way, because we're all standing before the judgment seat. First, Romans chapter 14, Romans 14, 10. But why do you judge your brother? That's the weaker judging the stronger in context. Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? That's the, that's the stronger versus the weaker. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. This is the judgment seat of God. This is the day of Christ, as we're going to see, where he is on the throne judging rewarding or not turn to first corinthians chapter three there's going to be a day where everything is exposed and revealed and the work that i did in sharing the word of god with you week after week after week if you held fast will change your life because it's god's word not because of me but because of god by his spirit and it will show an eternity and give god glory forever but if you don't hold fast the word it'll be in vain towards you what a shame what a shame. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. Speaking of giving the word of God. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day, the day of Christ, I believe, will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. There's a day in which our deeds will be judged. Believers... Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll finish up with that. 2 Corinthians 5. There's a day where it's all going to be shown. If you're, now, if you're not a make-believer, a faker, you know, if you're a true believer, true believer. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether home or absent, he's speaking about them being out of this body with the Lord or, 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 at, or at home with the Lord, to be pleasing to him. Home in the body or absent from the body. To be pleasing to him. Notice what he says, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, that each one may be what? Recompensed for his deeds in the body. That's right now, brothers and sisters, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Uh-oh. Recompensed. Now, where sin isn't the issue, it's rewards. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you. Hold tightly to what you are taught personally and through those who teach you. Hold tightly to the word of God so that in the day of Christ, God will get all the glory when we see what God did through what I shared with you and what he did through his word with others who shared with you. When we see what God did, and it will manifest in your deeds, which will be judged on that day. It'll either be all for glory or all for vanity or loss. Are you holding fast the word of God? Are you holding fast? Stop complaining and grumbling and hold fast the word of God in every area of your life. I began by speaking about what do we cling to? What do we cling to? I hope you cling to the Word of God. That should be the most important thing in your life. Yes, we do other things. We have families. We have friends. We have work. We have the things we do. But underlying that, there is a tight grip in our hearts holding on to the Word of God, holding on to it. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Take hold of it. Don't walk out of here and let it go what you heard today. Hold on to it. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you that uh, true believers, by and large, will be holding fast the word of life. But yet we've seen today, Lord, that there's the possibility that the work done unto us might be in vain. That those who labored and ran the race rightly and well to the finish, who labored and toiled in the word, that that work would be for nothing. I pray that that wouldn't be the case here, Lord Jesus. Please, I pray for anyone here who is not holding fast the word of God, who is a believer. Lord, convict them of their sin, that they would hold fast and that we would glory together in what you did in the day of your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray for those who don't know you, they're not holding fast the word at all, that they'd be saved, they would turn to Jesus and cling to him for salvation. And Father, for those of us who are, who are holding fast, Lord God, we're tempted every day to let go. Remind us to hold fast your faithful word, to hold fast the word of life, to hold fast to your son as we hold fast to his word. We pray this in his name. Amen.